Dude, we gotta find some new. We gotta find some new no corners to get pissed at, man. It's true. We're, we've uh, <laughs> we need to go out in the world and get belligerent. We can't just <laughs> stay in our own chats. All right, let's let's go ahead and start the show. Uh, welcome to the Raleigh Bitcoin meetup. Uh, we just decided that we needed to find some no coiners to get mad at instead of <laughs> getting mad at each other in our Telegram chats. Or I mean, we can go after DeFi too. You know, <laughs> those guys are are bad dudes. There we go. Oh, that's just yeah. easy. That's that's low hanging fruit right there. It is, but I don't know. I don't think they know that they're part of the problem. I don't think they know that they're doing a counter revolution where we're all marching away from Goldman Sachs and they have reversed and started marching back towards Wall Street. And they think it's somehow helpful what they're doing. It does feel like they're just doing that creative financing, those, you know, hidden mortgages, uh, rehypothecation. It does, it does seem like they're just trying to build that in uh, to Ethereum, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like there's a whole lot of not understanding what the problems of the systemic risk and uh, uh, illusions of the old financial system were. And they're just, I mean, when, you know, making up differences of some of these things are done through printing tokens to cover orders that don't have liquidity. It's just like, guys, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Dude. Think about how ridiculous it is. I don't know who posted it, but the fact that within the compound system, there are like 340 million die that are posted as collateral. But in reality, there are 100 million die that exist in the world. So like, think about if some, you know, that would be the equivalent of some Bitcoin exchange claiming to have 60 million Bitcoin and people being like, yeah, this is fine, you know. And they've but recreated that system in a few months, guys. Boy, that's true. It's I mean, you can't argue with that. Come on. But like, how people don't immediately see that and think, "Hmm, this is a problem," is beyond me. There is an issue here, and it is a bad. Well, I'm also confused because having done loans loans don't work out like where is this interest coming from you know you're not going to get your money back i remember doing bit lending club which was like an early bitcoin lending service where you could just loan anywhere in the world and you're not going to get your money back you know the only way to to do it is through fraud because the reality is if you lend someone money you're not going to get your money back yeah, I don't, I don't really get it. It's, it seems like the lending uh, thing here requires identity and trust and, you know, the police have your driver's license and they know where you live and like the law can come in. But if you're just lending in the crypto space where there's like no real sense of like identity or law. It's pure counterparty risk. Like it's somebody else's liability, which means that you have to know who that person is. Yeah. You can't just lend into nothingness and then have them no obligation whatsoever to to give it back like it just like like lending is specifically something with counterparty risk therefore you need to know who your counterparty is or you need to be trusting some centralized institution that does the vetting for you which is what you know someone would do when 
the economy used to be sensible and you put money into savings and the bank lent it out and shared interest with you. The bank is liable. So they make sure that people are credit worthy, but it just thinking that you're going to automate that just with a program. Like if you're not finding out whether or not somebody's credit worthy, that's it's just not going to work. It's not yeah. going to work. Yeah. These are basic laws of just lending in general. Right. And you could dress up, you could dress it up in like as much marketing and narrative speak as you want by using terms like smart contracts and automation. But like at the end of the day, you still have to know who you're lending it to, to validate if they're trustworthy enough to pay your money back. Cause you're still going to have that same problem. Just like you said, in this type of environment, even with this technology. I think that system where you have more coins, um, on paper than are actually even physical in existence that that sort of direct ponzi scheme system is the only way that these systems can operate and i think unfortunately we've been degraded to a point where i think ponzi schemes are just you know the world's fine with ponzi schemes because they work for a little while and i think you know we're just gonna let you know obviously failing systems get advertised on YouTube and by all these, you know, famous influencers, but, and nothing's going to come of it. Like they work for a little while and that's good enough. <laughs> right. It's a business. You can run Ponzi, Ponzi schemes as a business, yeah. you know, like since they work for that very small variable time, you just sell people that particular time period and make money and just constantly create a new Ponzi scheme after a new one, after a new one, after a new one. And is running as run it as a business. <laughs> it's it's insane. Uh, aren't we like back to that? Um, oh, sorry, Daniel. I don't know if I cut you off, but uh, no, you're good. Uh, are are we back to that? Um, you know, okay, a bunch of new wave of people might be brought in with the DeFi stuff, with the bullshit stuff, and so it's like my mind goes back to that space where I'm like, well, you know there was a huge wave of people that came in for the bullshit ICOs and they ended up being turned into Bitcoiners. So it's like a Machiavellian, like do the ends justify the means? Like, should I just rant against this new scammy stuff? Or is it just, that's the way of Bitcoin. Like the scammy stuff brings in new people and some of the new people are turned into Bitcoiners and you know, what would Satoshi think about that <laughs> i mean like that's, that's a good point man because some of the uh consternation we had in telegram earlier was like should we accelerate the fall of usd or not and usd is a scam so you know other scams you should pump those too to, to make it more obvious and accelerate yeah I the problem with USD is it's currently only being debased to benefit the wealthy. And if we're going to tolerate that, I, I just don't see how we can tolerate that. You either have to stop them from debasing it at all, or you need to debase it so that it's debased for everyone equally. You know, it needs to be some sort of insane, just subsidy that truly accelerates the end where the USD goes away or just collapses in confidence. Because it's, it's going to be a real problem that these people just printed themselves $5 trillion 
I know it's not practical that they could actually buy all the Bitcoin, but they could buy a lot of Bitcoin. And they also, these people, we, uh, we overstate that they can't buy all the Bitcoin because, uh, you know, their whole expertise is accessing liquidity. And I, I think they could seduce a lot of Bitcoin into their hands with, you know, trillions of dollars. You know, it's not. Yeah. This is their full-time job. This is what they've been practicing for hundreds of years. It's this one skill of becoming wealthy. We shouldn't, if they can just print money to themselves, they have such an unfair advantage. You mean right. uh, And that's basically what they did with gold, right? Yeah, but like specifically, Papa Frito, are you talking about the skill of being able to buy a lot of an asset without putting those orders on order books so that the price goes up? Like being able to basically have a lot of demand, but be being able to hide the demand from that market so that the purchasing of it does not make the price go up. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, a good trader doesn't need to make the price go up. Um, why the price moves, nobody really knows. But if you if you're if you have a long time frame about when you're going to enter into your position, instead of oh, I need to buy it all at once. Yeah, they could acquire millions of Bitcoin, you know, they just need to do it slowly and not, you know, but I that... just think we, we shouldn't under, uh, underestimate them at all, especially when they, they can just write themselves trillions of dollars. Yeah, I get that. I just, I just struggle with, does, does the basic laws of supply and demand not hold for these guys for some reason? You know, I mean, even though you're saying they have you know, they want a lot of money, a lot of Bitcoin, and they're going to buy it slowly, whatever. It doesn't matter. They, they still have a lot of demand for Bitcoin. So, I mean, doesn't the law of supply and demand still hold, like, even for, I mean, this is just one question I struggle with. Like, I don't, I don't like OTC Bitcoin. Well, I mean, I like it for privacy reasons, but I don't understand how supply and demand works when people's requests for Bitcoin aren't placed on order books like i don't do you guys have a better feel for that i mean i think uh just kind of naturally like the the idea it doesn't really hurt that it's not placed on the order books because it's it's the same as withholding it from the market um like uh, if if I don't put my Bitcoins on the market, on the order books, well, then there is upward pressure for my lack of supply being available. Same with the OTC markets is that you're not really changing the dynamic, like the effect of it. It's just not, it's the absence of supply rather than a sell that is affecting the order book. So it affects the order book either way um, because uh, it's still a, buyer and a seller you know being met in the market um and having to determine the price it's just uh i yeah. mean you know very likely it could end up moving the price even more because you might have uh buyers you know buying large amounts and buying at uh you know premiums and stuff to the market which could indicate to you know the order books that like i'm you know to for people to pull off and not sell or something like that um, i don't i don't see it as being like this uh any sort of damage so, to the price discovery to me like is this like one of those situations where the problem like we're worrying about a problem that really isn't a problem 
like let's say the US government decides to buy all no not they can't possibly buy all Bitcoin let's say they buy realistically they buy 5 million Bitcoin which is a huge stretch really really hard to do 5 million out of 21 million Bitcoin let's say and they have 5 million Bitcoin they're they're run they run at a cost right they they're running literally at a cost they're gonna have to bleed some of that Bitcoin eventually back into the market, back into the hands of people who are worthy of holding Bitcoin. I don't just see them sitting on 5 million or whatever number they acquire and just sitting on that. I just can't see that happening. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I don't even know how they would acquire 5 million Bitcoin. And it's not that much available on the market. They'd have to the price would have to skyrocket to get that much volume for sale. Yeah, but that, yeah, that just gets back Any to number. the same question. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, how to, yeah. I mean, you just, you have to have a seller. And I guess the seller always just gets to make that decision about whether they're going to sell for whatever price, whether that happens on an exchange or off the exchange. I guess, you know, we're just hoping that the magic of the market would just make that price skyrocket even if it's done well, on the exchange, right? What I really like about th uh, when it comes to price uh, considerations is that how many variables go into a price? You know, if I'm, if we're looking at this as just gold for a moment, my desire to go to the local bullion dealer and just look at what he's got is going to have an effect on the price in some capacity. I may not even buy, just simply going out and trying to shop for something that is scarce will affect the price. And I think that is, that's something to take into consideration uh, when we're talking about price. That I think price is one of those items that there are so many variables, it is non-quantifiable. It's just, it's just so much going in on it. Um, and I think OTC definitely affects price. Um, even if we don't know what people are doing, they're certainly kicking around the can and doing things like Google searches to see you know, what the fees are to buy a, uh, you know, $40 million worth of Bitcoin right? That could have an impact on someone's Twitter app, right? And how that affects um, sentiments in a, in a tweet or just, just the little micro movements up to something grandiose, like telling someone they bought $40, $40 million worth of Bitcoin. Um, I think there's just so many variables when it comes to price that it's just kind of one of those things you can never quite quantify. It just moves because it does. Yeah. And I think... Um the as soon as you start getting like central banks trying to buy up the supply of bitcoin like you immediately market as like the only way for them to get the volume and the percentage of the supply as to be effective um or as to be like like an important power or a potentially price setter of the good um is is literally to make it uh, like immediately part of the global like power sphere like like that you know they do that with gold and gold is eight trillion dollars market um like as soon as they start trying to play that game with bitcoin i think you you end up with a multi-trillion dollar price and then you immediately signal to the world that this is an important thing to have like you trigger the feedback loop that causes everybody to like that causes these huge cycles and you know puts bitcoin on the world stage and then you get you know multiple 
central banks trying to do the exact same thing. I don't think there's a clean way to just be like, all right, we're in control of this now because we bought a lot of it without getting every one of their adversaries to go. We need to buy a lot of this. And uh, this is an incredibly important piece of the global economic sphere now. And this is now a trillion dollar, a $10 trillion asset that everybody needs a piece of. I don't see that happening secretly. Yeah. You're, you're buying I mean, large the thing we're, yeah. yeah, a big thing we're glossing over in this conversation is that like we're using the U.S. as the example. The U.S. will be the last one to publicly state anything about owning Bitcoin. You know, yeah. every other country that's not the world reserve will have those discussions first. And they'll definitely be first earlier to publicly state it because they, they want to talk their own book. They want to pump their own bags after they've already you know made their play yeah um uh, yeah one of the conflict of interest that i'm totally okay with <laughs> i have an analogy that i think we should keep in mind when we talk about the central banks buying bitcoin and it's the joke that we might just be jilted lovers that are lying to ourselves you know there's a great song called what a fool believes where this man has deluded himself into believing that he had a chance with this woman but he never had a chance. <laughs> and we're all pretending like, you know, in 2000, the last run-up, if we had made it to 100,000, that these, that these uh, banks and these uh, hedge funds that rejected us were going to, like, you know, come to us with open arms. It's never going to happen. You know, by the time they actually do do that, we're not going to want them. So we need to keep in mind that, that you know, this infatuation with people that have no reciprocal interest in us needs to stop. You know, we need to go after the people that have never thought about us once. We need to go and like really fuck up their world, <clears throat> the world and like, you know, just start printing money for poor people. It's that simple. You know, it's, it well, dude, nothing. It that, turns their negative against them. I'm okay with that. That's got the makings yeah, of a it. great meme, man. So like, you know, there's like, know your customer, like, we got to know your customer who we're selling to. Cause like, if you're selling to a central bank, uh, you're making a big mistake, man. No selling to central banks. So you got to know who you're selling to. So know your banker. <laughs> yeah. And just naturally. That would be sound. a really good one. The only rule in Bitcoin, the only two rules in Bitcoin are a 21 million and B you can't sell to central banks. <laughs> exactly. And just, just naturally really how decentralized. Just naturally how decentralized Bitcoin is, um, we've kind of thwarted, you know, central banks from, you know, coming in, in any significant, you know, um, instance. So like right now, Bitcoin is positioned in this situation where, if I'm a central bank, especially like a U.S. like a with a decent, you know, currency compared to the world, you know, my best thing to do to combat Bitcoin is to, to just ignore it. Right now, I don't want to signal to the world like you were saying earlier to you know start buying bitcoin raising prices they see who's buying all this bitcoin oh the central bank of the united states uh yeah they're buying bitcoin okay this is really legit now you don't want to legitimize bitcoin at all so right now they're just ignoring it now obviously it's a lose-lose strategy for them but i mean <laughs> with the way things just transpired and how decentralized things are and how we just fended them off for, for this long they have no choice but to take that approach yeah, I mean, uh, another thing I feel like we've neglected is that if a central bank or if the government wanted to acquire a lot of Bitcoin, 
the easiest route for them would just to be to nationalize GBTC, you know, just mm. send some tanks to Barry Silbert's house. And then all of a sudden all grayscales Bitcoin is their Bitcoin. You know I mean? I, I would not be angry at that. I would say good for you, U S government. You did something <laughs> right for once. You, <laughs> you saw that there was a pile of gold sitting in one place and you just took it because it was too easy not to. <laughs> right. I mean, well, also, like, think about the technical custodial problem that a central bank would have. I mean, they'd have to have hire someone who actually held the private keys. I mean, they would, I mean, would, would it be like the, the chairman, the Fed chairman actually learned how to do multi-sig and, like, learned how to held their own private keys? I mean, like, there's no way they would ever get involved with that. They would just find the company that actually knows how to do, you know, multi-sig on really secure, you know, with a ton of Bitcoin in it. And they would just nationalize that company. I mean, that's the, you know, that's how it would happen. Yeah. There's no there's way. Like two, there's two or three contractors somewhere in Virginia that have yeah. the private keys for <laughs> exactly. all of exactly. America. And one of them's <laughs> going to turn into Edward Snowden. Like, you know, it's going to happen. Like, Oh man, what a, what a race condition that would be, <laughs> dude. But when we're talking about Gosh. central banks, I still think we, we think we have a chance with like the prettiest girl in the school for some reason. And it's, it's not going to happen. You know, it's, we need to accept that we need to take, you know, the poor populace, which nobody wants to date. Everybody <laughs> does not care about. And we need to my fair lady them into, you know, this beautiful, sophisticated lady. Do the, uh, she's all that where she takes off the glasses and she's really smoking hot. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's what's happening with COVID is only the essential workers matter. And what we can do is just, if we actually embrace the people that do the essential work, then the, the burden of the rich and the middle class no longer falls on us it falls on the state and the state has to like collapse itself trying to sustain these people that contribute nothing. You know, it's, it's a, I see, I think it's a great idea. I think we need to Bitcoiners need to identify who's actually important and then just keep raising the minimum wage into only the <laughs> people have jobs. <laughs> Who, who's essential for Bitcoin? Who are the, the essential Bitcoiners? I mean, it's just like who's growing the food and like who's building the infrastructure of homes and roads and best content podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with you that uh, we. I mean, I've always thought. I, I mean, people that are like, "Oh, we got to get the hedge funds into Bitcoin." You know, Bitcoin's only going to succeed if the traditional finance guys like decide they want it. Like, I've always been against that mentality. Like that mentality to me just seems like more centralization. So yeah, I'm with you. Another way is the people that we think are attractive now are wrong. If you think about who was attractive 10 years ago and how flat their butts were, you know, times change. Now we go for the big butts. And eventually the economy <laughs> is going to be run by people that grow food and build roads and not by people that just like perform servant services of designing logos and arranging flowers and moving. I, I, I don't even know how, like accounting, all these weird jobs that you don't even know if they'll survive. And we need to go after the people that we're sure is gonna be around a hundred years from now and get them on our side. 
Big butts. Get you a nice fat bottom girl, man. Yeah. <laughs> man, we got a lot of pop culture references this episode. This is great. <laughs> the listeners are going to love this. I mean, I don't like selling out to the institutions just because I see, you know, the whole point of this project is decentralization. So, I mean, if we, the more we sell to the, like, the masses, you know, the more, the further decentralized Bitcoin gets. So, I mean, yeah, I'm always a fan of that approach. But, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I hesitate to align Bitcoin with any political movement just because me, I like personally hate politics and I see it destroy my family and everybody's families. And oh, I, you know, I'm in Bitcoin because it's like the most apolitical thing to be inspired about these days. Uh, but I mean, I totally get behind Bitcoin as the people's money. Like, I guess I'll go that far, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's good. I, that's good. I, I like that approach. I prefer that approach. <clears throat> I mean, people are going to, they're going to pitch to central government and you know the rich guys they're gonna just naturally do that and i think that's okay there's a space in bitcoin for people to chase those particular people there are also people who are chasing after people who are unbanked like andreas antonopoulos he's been you know for the past time that he's been associated with bitcoin at least you know he's been that has been his main slogan his main you know almost purpose uh with bitcoin so i mean there's different angles and avenues and right now it's just that obviously the central banks and, you know, the big, the big money guys, they're the forefront because that's what everyone's chasing. It's, well, it seems like they're chasing when it comes to social media, but there's other, you know, initiatives that are happening behind the scenes with, um, you know, you know, other, other folks as well. I think also Bitcoin might've been backing the right pretty clearly the entire time and the right never backed us up. Like we were, we started out as all libertarians pretending like Republicans could do some libertarian things and it failed. <laughs> like we, we might've pretended like we were apolitical, but we were probably libertarian and we need to now jump sides and uh, just make an, a strong alliance. Cause the alliance never formed, you know, the, the rest of the rich people never jumped on board our cause. Um, you know, we supported a lot of ideals that uh, and got nothing for it. I find the most interesting thing about politics in this day and age that seems to be accelerating at a ridiculous rate is the level of division and animosity about increasingly dumber, stupider, more arbitrary shit. <laughs> like, like literally like down to pronouns, whether you have a mask on your face, that this would lead to <laughs> screaming, cursing fist fights of just everything is politicized. Yeah. Um, and the government is supposed to have some rule about every dumbass preference that exists. Um, and there is a right preference and there is a wrong one. End of story. And you are the evil shithole of society if you don't have the right one. And it's yeah. absolutely crazy i don't know like that's that's why i i try to stay away from it because it is so unbelievably divisive like to just make a comment about a mask one way or the other we'll get one group of some people just screaming at what a crazy psycho you are and or canceled or deplatformed or whatever the hell it is um 
where I like, I don't know, like, like, you know, it's obviously just a building of pressure to something here. Um, and but I don't know how we walk this back. Like we're, we're getting, I mean, I feel like it's inevitable that it does happen. It's just that I don't see the clear path as to how, because we're, our, our divisions are getting deeper and deeper and we're going further and further into our, our echo chambers and finding our tribe and more and more hating of the other tribe and only seeing the, the, the rioter rather than just the normal protester or the police beating rather than a real, like a normal police officer or the, like we're always just seeing the bad of whatever we disagree with um, and increasing those divisions. Um, But like, that's, that's why I think, you know, maybe again, just focus on Bitcoin is that it's in an, it's a very unifying thing. It's, it's looking at a solution rather than all of the reasons that we could hate each other. Cause there's a billion dumbass reasons we could hate each other. Um, and people are increasingly loving all of those reasons, but yeah. it's, it's just crazy. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anyone's asking Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin God, whether they should wear a mask or not before they go out to the store <laughs> like this. If you're, if you're expecting an answer from that, like, yeah, you're, you're, you're you're doing it wrong. So I mean like yeah, you're absolutely right. Like this this is strictly apolitical. It's just like a situation where like you choose whether or not you spend your money at Starbucks and Dunkin Donuts. The key base here is the money. Where are you spending your Bitcoin? Just replace money with Bitcoin. Where are you spending your Bitcoin? How are you using your Bitcoin? That's strictly up to the in- individual. That's not a Republican thing. It's not even a libertarian thing. It's not even a democratic thing. It's not even whatever. It's strictly the individual's choice on how they use the Bitcoin. So I got a hypothetical for you guys. So is it better if Bitcoin is apolitical, so there is, it's not political at all? Or is it better if Bitcoin is political for whatever party you want it to be for? Because you can make the case that like Bitcoin makes a lot of sense to libertarian people and from conservatives, you know, get off my get off my rights, like limited government type, limited spending type stuff. It makes sense to conservatives. I'm sure there's lots of liberal, you know, ways that it can make sense. Should it <clears throat> should we just market Bitcoin as the solution for everyone's politics and not no politics? That's kind of what I wonder about, just because like politics is becoming is genuinely the center of so many people's worlds and identities is that like if you know the if the left which i don't even know if they care anymore um but if the left still wants to end the drug war um it's like (laughs) here's and and wants to end just wars in general well here's a great tool to actually help that and then if the right still cares about individual rights, which I don't, I don't know, um, uh, well, then here's another great tool for that. Um, if the libertarians want to be sovereign, well, then there you go. There's a great tool for that. Like, like, like market it to, and, you know, get the, you, you know, can you maybe get a liberal to be like, yes, let's end the wars and a Republican to be like, yes, let's have individual rights and you know whatever, and get them to sit down and realize that they have a joint solution, something they can agree on, and actually get behind and be like, all right, well, let's just fix these two problems, and we'll ignore 
all of the all of the reasons why I might want to stab you right now. We'll just stop <laughs> talking about that for a minute and solve one of our problems yeah. and move forward after that. I mean, Bitcoin is the great unifier in our society. You know, when two people come together around Bitcoin, they're immediately friends. And you cannot be not friends with someone who's a Bitcoiner. It's, it's just like how we envision money today. Like right. a Republican, Donald Trump is raising money to, re, to go for re-election. Joe Biden is running, uh, raising money to become the president as well. Kanye West is raising money and supposedly has money to become a president as well. All these people, they're raising money. They're using money to fund their initiatives. It shouldn't be, well, Kanye, Kanye West, he wrote a tweet about Bitcoin, so that's Bitcoin. No, <laughs> it should literally be just all this, like omnipresent all over the place, just like how we envision money right now. But it's a better form because it's now something that's, that makes you sovereign as an individual. Now you have more control, more access, you know, more ownership over it. But it shouldn't be like uh, Donald Trump tweeted about it's uh, like, bad Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's bad to Republicans. Yeah, like Republican, Republican raises money for campaign in USD. Like USD exactly. is Republican. Like, right. no, everybody loves money. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It it kind of like it goes back to that um, you know a crook and an honest person will both exchange money because even though they have nothing else in common they both believe that the money has value. It's kind of like Bitcoin's like it's kind of like becoming the water. You know, there there's certain things that underlie politics like language or mm-hmm. money or even kind of like the internet, like mm-hmm. Linux, you know, it's like, is Linux Democrat or Republican? You know, it's like, is, is Wikipedia Democrat or Republican? Like these. Is TCPIP. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like, <laughs> right? it's like, uh, <laughs> like you have to have kind of like a foundation to stand on in order mm-hmm. to even have an opinion. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I hope Bitcoin becomes one of these just foundational things. I mean, like, yeah, all right, go ahead. Can my, the problem and the reason I think we need to work on just raising or at least publicly advocating to raise the minimum wage in response to what's happening to the dollar is because half of America can't buy Bitcoin. They just can't. They're not allowed to participate because the entire economy has been rigged to make their wages low and their wages are so low they can actually not buy Bitcoin. And the economy is messed up that it is becoming increasingly difficult for them to possibly wait, uh, raise their wages, especially in COVID. You know, we don't know what the future holds. Are any of these college students going to get jobs? You know, you know, are half of them going to get jobs? Probably. So we, we need to think about how if people can't even afford Bitcoin. Should maybe Bitcoin do something about it, especially when it costs us nothing to debase the dollar and end poverty? And it helps us, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure about this ending poverty. Um, I don't know if that's my hill to die on, honestly. But um, I do hear what you're saying. I think right now the current snapshot is, okay, there are really rich people who are doing a lot of tricks um, with the USD to 
really get even richer and the poorer people are getting even poorer. I think, yeah, people don't have, the poor people don't have access to buy Bitcoin right now in the ways that they need to buy it. But like, you know, um, you know, Steve was mentioning before, once it becomes a foundational element where we think of it now, where we're talking about it in terms of, in, in sent, and in sentences, just like we refer to money, um, and we don't have to worry about the USD anymore. Once, we, once it's a foundational element in our society, I think people have better ways to access Bitcoin. I don't think we should worry about it right now in terms of, okay, let's, people are just poor, they don't have access to money or Bitcoin. When Bitcoin becomes that foundational element, they should be able to, that, that crossing the barrier, like that caste system that we have right now, it should be much easier with the money like Bitcoin, especially if you're providing value to society to cross barriers and to, you know, elevate yourself if you need to, but it's just a lot harder right now because we're thinking of it in the context of the USD, which is rigged, just like you said, is completely rigged. But Bitcoin, really hard to rig. And once you're in that system, the point is you have to be in the system and everyone has to agree that this system is what it is. Then that's when you're gonna see, okay, if you're poor, okay, provide some value to society, we'll pay you Bitcoin. <laughs> like, so, so Papa Frito, you know, a lot of you've talked previously about how a lot of people's jobs are kind of like faking productivity, like where you just kind of sit around all day and you have to act, you have to act like you're working, your boss has to act like they're paying you or something like that. <laughs> I love that. So how does, how does the, uh, how does increasing the minimum wage fit into that? Is it, does it fit in, in that, like this money is fake anyways? and your job is also fake, so we might as well give you a bunch of fake stuff. <laughs> Increase well, the I fake think the stuff. way that the current um, ruling class is that rich people <coughs> courted people they wanted to hang around with. They courted people that can dress nice and talk well, and that's the middle class. But the middle class doesn't do anything. But they knew that they could create a nice, you know, 50% of the populations are just, is just servants to rich people, but they do no actual fundamentally important work. They're not making human life survive. So we need to court the other 50%, which has never been courted before, because the only way this system works is the foundation is poverty. That because we have so much poverty, we're gonna have a huge middle class that was, is loyal to the, to the rich. And instead we're going to be like, well, we're the new rich, even though we're not rich yet, we will be the new rich, I assure you. And we're going to go after the people they've ignored. And this will kind of take, take the system right out from under them. So I would be willing to get on this, this, um, this campaign a lot more easily if instead of raising the minimum wage, we just raise the unemployment benefits. Because I think a society that has 3% unemployment is fundamentally not doing something right. Because there should be like lots more people that are they're not unemployed, but they don't have to work. Well, that's, you know? not, that's not true. I, mean, I don't think, I mean, I think unemployment, some section of unemployment is just in the mobility of the economy. Um, like you're always going to have some section that is in the process of learning something new, transitioning out of an economy, out of an industry that is in decline and transitioning into an industry that is growing. Um, and if you don't have something like if we're talking about the long term and we're talking about a sound money system, 
like the incentive is to not have unemployment because you're you're already splitting the extra productivity among everybody who has savings. So the point is to make the economy as mobile as possible and to incentivize people to has, have their own savings um, as much as possible. And with that, they have, not only do they have their own mobility and their own independence in doing that, but they have the ability to quit a job when the air conditioning isn't being cut on and conditions are crappy and their boss is kind of a jackass. It's like, Oh, well, all right. You know, I've got three months of savings. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. I'm going to go find yeah. a better job. I'm going to go work with a better company. Like, well, I, I think that's, I think that's a lot of what I'm saying as well. And that, you know, you shouldn't always be hanging on by your last paycheck to survive type of thing. Yeah. I think that's literally just a product of our money though. Like I think Bitcoin naturally solves that. I, I think it does, but like, shouldn't we accelerate that? I think the end is we want a Bitcoin to surpass the dollar as soon as possible. That, and are you saying to do that with dollars? We need to do it by courting poor people. The, they can fake, nobody can wrap their head around $5 trillion. That's <laughs> not going to actually debase the money because the people who can wrap their head around that can, can make sure the prices don't move. If we make, raise the minimum wage, to $20, which I think we should. I think we need to we need to be more liberal than the liberals. This way we get a name for ourselves, whether it actually, it's, it's just a PR event initially, but it is kind of like staking new ground where we say $20 an hour, 30 hour work week. We need to scare them right. with like, oh no, Bitcoin just changed sides, it's acting crazy now. But it will also get <laughs> attention, you know? So. And, uh, because, but whereas paying people to be unemployed is, I think it goes with some, it's bad for human dignity. And it goes with some kind of bigoted assumptions about humans are just naturally lazy that were started by like Puritans and stuff long ago. Whereas people do want to be productive. People want to do want to do work, but there is not 40 hours worth. There's not 40 hours worth of work for every human being on earth to do. So my, you know? my problem with that, though, is you raise minimum wage. Now people feel more validated that USD is really it. Why would they spend that money on Bitcoin? Like, they've got a raise, like a natural raise. The work that they're doing, they now feel vindicated that that work that they've been doing is now worth a lot more. So why? So what's the path in terms of onboarding those people who just got a huge raise from the U.S. government who, makes, who prints USD? to go into Bitcoin. Uh, there's no need for onboarding. We are buying loyalty so that we can be kings. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. You have to explain, you have to explain how they're going to oh connect. They're gonna, how are they going to make that connection to Bitcoin? We're going to say, Never. we are the Bitcoiners. We keep raising the minimum wage for you. Just be loyal to us. That's all we ask. <laughs> wow. That's, this took a turn. It's, it's, it's that a, simple. A steep, a steep what, what, what does what does the what do the rich actually promise That's the middle class? That's what politicians class? do, right? Buy votes. This is the, this is the promise between the rich and the middle class: <laughs> is that your children will not be poor, your children will have the same standard of living you will, your children will be able to pretend like they're sophisticated and part of the nouveau rich from time to time when they splurge. This is the deal they have. The middle class is bought. There is no loyalty besides money being exchanged. It's all self-interest. So this is the Bitcoin party on the, on the Bitcoin ticket. You're writing in Papa Frito. He's going to be doing all these campaign initiatives.
initiatives. I think, right? I think we're actually, we just want people at like, we need people to start holding up Bitcoin uh, QR codes at rallies, like donate to our cause. Like we just want Bitcoin's logo to start being everywhere. That might you be know? a good idea. People might Dude, that's, that's how you prove it. That's how you prove if it's more more liberal or more conservative. Just hold up the QR code. Which one gets more? <laughs> <laughs> now, I think and there's I think a, the, the new wave is like an Ayn Rand approach. It's like an opt out. Uh, I don't think anyone here can, can anyone here's story and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is a story of getting into Bitcoin by examining the politics or examining traditional finance. <laughs> and then what's wrong with traditional finance? Oh, let me go look for something else. They saw Bitcoin as being something else as, as having opted out and being outside of the system. And that was what was enticing and interesting to it. Um, yeah. As much as I love the idea of giving it to the establishment and I have, I have tons of opinions about minimum wage and whatnot, raising it. Um, I think what makes Bitcoin inherently different is that it's beyond the system. Correct. Yep. But the system is so sloppy. If, if you can turn it against itself and collapse it, like you have to do it. It's, at some point, it's irresponsible of us not to. So Papa Fried, here's my concern wage. with that. And I'm going to be just super honest. When you elect me to the high court of Bitcoin supreme honor, right? I'm going to be like the Supreme Court Justice of the Bitcoin court. You can guarantee that I'm going to coat my pockets and get robe fever like you can imagine. I'll be the worst, oh, yeah. worst judge. Like in, in your system, you're going to rely on your cronies and your connections. I'm going to be the possibly the worst human being I can be if you let me do that. <laughs> yeah, it's centralized at that point. I mean, you're just going to be you're just going to be building on top of what's already not working. Uh, that's my concern. Is that I, and I get what you're saying. Like something needs to drastically change. I'm just I just think that building into the system. I, I think if we could just get people to 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 see Bitcoin as money. I think that's going to start solving a lot of the problems as and see Bitcoin is legitimate money that starts, right. that starts solving problems, you know, from the top down. Yeah. You raise minimum wage. These guys are going to be like, Hey, these Bitcoiners fixed the, the, the system. They fixed the U S government. Thank you. Thank, no, 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 no. We're actually betraying the middle class. It's the backlash from the middle class that we want. We want the, we want oh, to hit the middle class against the poor Get the rich split, split. I didn't and, see and this, this one. Yeah. A, yeah, we're breaking apart the, the morality of the middle class. We're breaking apart the morality of the rich because when they see that we're actually eliminating poverty, but in doing so, we're making them less wealthy, they are going to be angry. We are causing an actual, you know, we are doing income, uh, wealth redistribution. But the thing is, we're not part of the system. This is the unique thing about Bitcoin, as Jared was pointing out. We are above the system. So we can redistribute the wealth of the system. That's what we should be doing right now. Wouldn't you and need to be laughing. elected? Wouldn't you, you would need to be elected at that point though, to pull those types of changes. Um, I, I don't think so. I think you just need to, you know, you gotta take, and we want to support the people on the street, you know? I know, I know you want to do these things, but I'm saying to raise, <laughs> wouldn't you need to be an elected official or really be really good at corralling votes? I think you. I think the way they can just suddenly pass the five trillion dollar bill for themselves—that it's all a ruse, you know. It's these people. It's just their day job. They're just yeah. following orders, and the orders change really fast in a crisis. Right, but they're they're 
currently in that position. So how does a Bitcoiner get in that position? Is 11 write-in votes enough to get Papa Frito into a position? <laughs> Let's do it. I, I don't know. The I mean, do the major political donors aren't senators. You know, we need, we don't want to be the senators. The senators we want those people working for us, you know. Um, how do we, how do we get them working for us? We, uh, we, we just need a system where we start politically donating to people there to going to eliminate poverty by debasing the U.S. dollar and ensure that the dollar does not remain the currency as a result, you know, the, the world currency because it's too debased. I just, I'm just saying, I'm just asking how, <laughs> yeah. like these, there's people like, okay, let's say like a George Soros, right? This guy is loaded with money. So we would kind of need to have more money than that to make any waves. So, I mean. I don't think people do give very much money to causes that have a chance to succeed. I think when a cause has a chance to succeed, the, the, the fake political support immediately evaporates and that you can create real <laughs> wow. change by, by actually funding people at the moment when they're on the cusp of victory instead of pulling support. The current strategy by both the left and the right is anytime real change is about to happen within their party, they pull the floor out from under them and then pretend like they didn't. You know, they just lose the battle to maintain the status quo. Oh. And we're just gonna be that extra push that's it, that like gets it over the edge. So I've got a good, uh, a good throwback for you guys here. Have you guys ever heard of Operation Snow White? Nope. So no. uh, criminal conspiracy by the Church of Scientology during the 1970s to purge unfavorable records about Scientology and its founder, Al Ron Hubbard, uh, from government agencies and foreign embassies. They basically had a bunch of people apply for government jobs and go in there and start burning documents. Uh, Papa Frito, it sounds like that would be a better uh, linear attack wow. or a lateral attack uh, on what you're suggesting. Um, stuff We're to going under the yeah. specific people we donate to are church leaders <laughs> that want to help the poor. We are getting behind, we're hiding behind both the left and the right when you embrace this person because they, the right can't attack a religious leader and the left can't attack a poor person and they don't know what to do. It, it, they're just strategically, they're not ready for this scenario so they don't know how to react. They don't know how to react to someone coming in and going away with the program that, you know, Actually, people are worthless. Robots are going to take all the jobs. It's just to give them unemployment. No, we're going to we're actually saying, no, people have dignity. They should only work 30 hours a week. They should get paid $20 an hour in poverty now. And no, no side can handle that because it's too, it's outside of their paradigms. The, the battles they've, they've created are fake. It wow. is these battles over like, let's wear masks or not. They want to have a battle over let's wear masks or not. You know, was it good that Dr. Fauci lied to us? Was he was that a great moral act because he saved the mask for the uh, for the you know critical workers? So like that's uh, what they wanted to talk about. We have to make the conversation uncomfortable because we're outside of the system. Hey Frito, um, when I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but the way that I think about someone being poor is that they. Um, like they don't have a lot of money, but poverty is like a lack of essentials. Like if you didn't have food, you might be in poverty, but you know, you could, 
in Venezuela, like you could have a million Venezuelan dollars and still be poor. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, is the goal to eliminate poverty or to eliminate being poor? Well, you, or is the there, is, is that even a difference? The difference? I don't know if so I would like you say. Could be, you could be poor as like a, it's a comparison to something else. Whereas I see poverty as like, you can't provide basic necessities. Well, I think, I think both are like, I mean, even just the idea of basic necessities, like all that is relative. Um, yeah. Like, like, like poor in, you know, most, most of the poor in the U S have, a shockingly higher standard of living than the quote unquote poor in right. India or every China, other country. Like rural. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um everything not in the Western world. So I guess what I'm saying is that is it is is the elimination of poverty an actual thing that could ever happen no matter what money we use? I think so. I mean, technology eliminates poverty. I think it eliminated poverty almost 50 years ago. And then now we live in a situation of artificial scarcity. We figured out all the uh, crop stuff, all the, you know, we can grow everything all over the world. We've modified it so it grows faster than ever. It grows in more abundance than ever. Same thing with like housing and stuff. Um, we just have made artificial scarcity a fundamental part of the system instead of made it so you could build a house for $10,000 you know so it's like we've we've spread out the artificial scarcity over the entire economy instead of concentrating it on the money correct the middle class's job yeah, that's is to artificial scarcity that's that's mm. their whole thing is that the their poor people do the actual work the middle class creates artificial scarcity and gets paid like a, a fee to do that and the rich keeps 90 percent oh, yeah the um crazy. the like, like, I truly think sound money, like, I, I don't know if there is, I, I don't know if I would say that there is a quote unquote solution to poverty, um, as if there is just a point where there's no such thing. Um, but, you know, like, I think actually society today, even in the like current environment of horrific imbalances, unbelievable inequality with the wealthy um and the uh the the poisonous monetary system that we are under um like if you look back 150 years ago uh 200 years ago there wasn't people didn't even talk about poverty like poverty is poverty was it like that that was what like like nobody's holding like a candlelight vigil for like poor people in you know rural 1800s like it just wasn't even a thing people only care about something like the, the only protest something when you're on the cusp of actually solving it um yeah. and if we actually had a sound money system like if you look back from like 1971 our average productivity has gone has like three x like I mean, just a, a staggering increase from a historical perspective, like just unbelievable. If you look back in history at just the productivity of an hour of a human's time, it's unbelievable how much, how much more productive we are just 40, 50 years ago, but we have seen none of it in value. 
our, our money has captured none of it. It has all been confiscated. Our median wage hasn't moved. It is almost exactly the same as it was despite a 300, a 200%, a 3X in what we actually produce. Um, and if we actually had sound money and we are actually properly distributing and paying out uh, the, the value of the production to the people who were producing it and incentives were realigned, I think we have the closest thing to saying the, to, to the accuracy of saying the phrase, we have solved provis, pro, uh, uh, poverty as can exist in the world today. Yeah. Hey, dude, by the way, you're a cameo on that film, hardmoneyfilm.com. That was oh, great, man. Dude, dude I just awesome. saw it. I just saw it like a, a couple days ago. Me I was too. like, I just oh, shit, it, and I got the last word. That was great. Dude, I, I know. That. I felt like, real good about that. Yeah. Wait, for you guys I haven't that, seen that. Where can we see it? Um, well, you know, there's that, that website, um, WTF happened in uh, 1971.com. Yeah, it was just on the site. Yeah, like yeah. One minute so ago. Great site. Well, they decided to make a movie about the site or just you know the concepts in the site and uh had a bunch of people talking and they had guy swan give like the one of the final kind of recaps of all that shit it was great dude no kidding yeah, yeah. it was safe somebody Dean. post the link um oh hell yeah it steen was in there nice uh, it was just they pulled from podcasts and interviews hey jared post that one uh, to the whole group that's yeah, awesome hard yeah, i posted it on the telegram a couple days ago i got it in com. um I think that's the URL right there. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. Go ahead, guys. Say that one more time. Oh, I, was, I just typed it in. It was, I think, yeah, yeah, that's it. Hardmoneyfilm.com. It's in the chat. And not to be confused with Hard Honey Film, which is a straight-up porno site. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one letter makes one all the difference. I'll check, I'll check that one out. I'll check that one out later. <laughs> I'll watch Hard Money film for the next 30 or 40 minutes and then before I go to sleep. <laughs> hard honey. Wow, 30 or 40 minutes, man. Good. Yeah, I saw It's that a good hard, documentary too. It's, it's Yeah, I saw the Hard uh, nice. Money video through um the Rabbit Hole Recap guys sending in their their newsletter. I mean, it was it was legit. Yeah, I was shocked how well produced that was. What, how did you feel when you heard Guy on there? Oh, I was like, oh my God, I know someone famous. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I know that guy. You know, the best part about knowing someone that's like on something so popular is that you get to say to your friends, man, I've heard that guy say some really smart shit on a video, but man, he says some dumb shit too. I hope you were saying that. (laughs) That's not the case at all. (laughs) Yeah, man, it's so real. I I feel like it's catching on too. I mean, I I just hear more and more people just asking about money and how money's created. Like, I don't. Did you guys hear? um, Who's that comedian? uh, Bert or Bill 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 Burr? Bill, Bill Burr, Burr. With, on the Bill and Burt podcast. With yeah, okay. Burr. Like, yeah, like yeah, we, that was a great you know, one. Pomp is just always pomp. But like, Bill Burr was like getting it. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. It's like. He was getting it know. and asking, asking the right questions. He was asking the right questions. I want to do, yeah. I, I do a, uh, should, actually, should I? I'll ask you guys if you would want to hear it. Um, but there were a lot of answers that I thought Pomp was kind of missing the mark on. 
Um, yeah. Like, like yeah. he did, he did just enough that I think it was sparking interest and at least got them thinking in the right direction. But there were so many times I was like, Oh my God, you missed this lowest hanging fruit imaginable. And you kind of went on this tangent that didn't answer the question quite right. Should, would, Dude, they talked way too much about like petrodollar and oil and all this other stuff. Yeah. And That's because Bill Berg got into sound money and Austrian economics right before Bitcoin. Like he got into it in 2007, went completely crazy and then stopped caring about it until now, I think. Because he went so overboard, which I think has happened to lots of people in the past. Is anyone who yeah. found out how money works, you just burned out because there was nothing you could do about it. You were completely powerless until right now. I mean, you could have tried to stack gold, but you knew that gold was like hopeless. So Dude. I wanted to ask: um, Is uh, uh, if if I did a response like video and possibly podcast episode, where I basically just kind of took most of the questions that Bill Burr asked and uh, gave uh, gave a different answer to them, I guess you could say. Do you think anybody would watch that? Like, do you think I mean, it would be? I, I, would, I would definitely watch that. I definitely had the same feeling you did. Like, I would have given a completely different answer than Pomp, like a more accurate answer. And because what I was so, pri so surprised about was how they would ask a question and then Pomp would not answer their question. He, he wouldn't give a good answer at all, but he would say something else that they liked. And they felt like their question was answered even though it wasn't. And yeah, so that like, happened like two or three times. Yeah, and so like that, that bothered me, but like I also think that Pomp has like been trained that way. Like, I think like, it's a good sales technique. Yeah, it's like it's here's what that sales. person's asking. They can't really handle the, the answer to that question. So let me just say this, which is like a tangent, which is like related to their question. I think he's just, he's just learned that that's what works with people that aren't comfortable with concepts like open source and decentralization. And that they're just, they're not ready to handle that kind of that's an interesting thought, you know, and that's an interesting take because I couldn't yeah. decide if it was Pomp didn't know how to best answer it. So he just answered something tangential um, that uh, that helped to explain like a similar principle, but didn't really answer the question, you know, like, like it was, yeah. it was on the same topic, you know, when he did that, I feel like, but that's interesting. I never thought about the fact that maybe he was literally just going into something that he thought would kind of appeal to who he was talking to specifically but without really worrying about the heart, like getting at the question itself. Papa Frida hit the nail on the head. This is straight up sales training techniques as well as politics. Don't answer the question that you had asked or you were asked. Answer the question you wish you had been asked. Um, you you um, you get taught that in sales. You get taught that when you practice law. And the people that do this, the very best are politicians. <laughs> yeah. And, and also professional money raisers. You know, people that run hedge funds. I mean, they've got to appease people. They can't tell someone something they don't want to hear may not yeah i mean at, at one point i had to pause the podcast because i was so frustrated with how he was answering things uh, i did finish wow. it i gotta listen but, to this now yep like when the first question he got asked it was like you know what is money and he says oh it's a shared belief 
you know, it's backed by nothing. It's a shared belief. I was like, no, no. That, that got me. That was, I was like right out the gate. I was like, oh, Jesus. Like, because oh, somebody, to somebody who's uninitiated, that sounds like it's totally arbitrary. It, yeah, um, I know. But that yep. was his point. I mean, his point was to say that like, his, his point was to compare Bitcoin to the US dollar. And he yeah. can put them both on a le level playing field by saying, you know, at some point it comes down to your confidence in it. Yeah. The so closest think, he came to, I think, answering that properly is a little bit, a little bit later on in the conversation. He actually went back and said, that doesn't mean that every, anything yeah. will work good as money right. just because, um, yeah. but certain things work better as money. But yeah, the whole, the whole, it's just a belief thing i was like because right off the bat it just kind of sets the completely wrong i think early in that, how to think about money I, I feel like i think early in that interview he got asked like impossibly tough questions which is like how does inflation happen when money's not backed by anything like how, oh does, how does that happen like i there's really no good explanation for it you Bill know, it's had no idea how inflation works. Wow. How revealing was that about Bill Burr's like ignorance about inflation? We're just talking about gold. Did you guys listen to that part? Yeah. Like, I can't place it, man. It's just, uh, I, I think, think it's just in, in indicative of how everybody, I think it's indicative of how everybody thinks about it. Like people just don't know what inflation is. And I think just calling it just the word inflation obscures what the hell's going on like it's it is confusing in and of itself to the average person like yeah. i think i think you should just call it counterfeiting like they've counterfeited more money into the system um and they are just the ones that can counterfeit without going to jail everybody else goes to jail but they are the ones who have the authority to counterfeit um but i, I don't know it was it was it was a little bit I, I, like I loved the whole thing overall. I watched it to the end. I was very happy with it. I felt like Bill Burr was definitely like on board and following and he mm. got, you know, I think he got rabbit holed. Same wow. with Bert. Bert probably more than Bill. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Dude, from I still the, think there from were the a response, lot of answers that Pomp could have done better. Yeah, I mean, from the response that we got from this group, like I think people would be pretty happy hearing your responses to these things. Yeah, I definitely would. I got I mean, an easy I, hour rant on that shit. <laughs> well, YouTube loves yeah. reaction videos. They're always oh, yeah. popular. That's what I was thinking. It was like, I should just do reaction videos to, like people are talking about Bitcoin all the time and they constantly get it wrong. Constantly get it wrong. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've been doing outreach and like just listening to random like finance podcasts that are talking about Bitcoin and blockchain. And I just want to be like, I want to get like kind of an in and... A, it's like an easy way to get content that I'm explicitly responding to. So like, like I don't have to, I'm not confused or wondering about like how to organize it or like what the content's going to be. I'm just responding to something that I think is incorrect and correcting it. Um, I, but, I and also I might get on their radar, you know, like Bill Burr might actually listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Also pick your battles. Like we're talking about the sales technique. You don't want to, you're, the manuscript overall was not a great manuscript. So don't rewrite the whole thing for them. Oh, Just yeah, be no. like, you've only got five minutes to see what was wrong with that video. I'm not going to correct half of it, but here are the five things that like you should know. That yeah, here are the, the big key things. I like that. That's a good mm -hmm. point. I don't know. You could, actually, 
you should actually do two reaction videos. One to how you would have answered the questions if you were asked and then critique um, Pomp's responses. Um, internet make loves Pomp controversy. <laughs> internet loves controversy. Yeah, I'm going to give like a totally different uh, response than Papa Frida there. But I really like when, I think you've done this sometimes, but I really like in general where people just like stop a video. They'll just like play this and they're like, all right, let's pause right there. All right, hold on a second. Let's slow down. Let's break this down. And like this guy said, what is money? Let's let's dig into this let's a little bit. Let's really um, talk about what money Let's really talk about this. Like, yeah. I know that's different than the audience that Papa Frito is imagining right now, but I really like it when people do that. And I think you'd be really good at that. Uh, well, I caught like, myself watching a bunch of reaction videos lately and like halfway through like, like the fourth or fifth video in some series that I was watching, I was like, why am I watching this? Why am I enjoying this? Why am I not just watching the actual video? And it just kind of, it just kind of caught me. I was like, shit, why is this? I don't, I don't know. There's something intriguing about getting someone else's response to some other content like to something said on joe rogan or yeah uh, to, you know and so i was like yeah i could do that pretty easily yeah. i just so think you want to keep them thirsty so they keep researching on their own you know good point yeah i will keep all of this in mind but i but i think i might do that this week but i mean you know i i will say actually that um I haven't liked Pomp for a while, but just because he got into that tokenize the world and all that bullshit, but seeing him on that show, I had a little more respect for him. Like, I was like, okay, you know, like, I get it. I don't know. I, he did a lot better on that show than I expected him to, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah, man, do a reaction video. Those are always great. I think I'm going to. Y'all convince me. Um, we started talking about. Go no, you're good. No, go ahead. I, I was going to change subject. Yeah, that's great. Um, Jared, do you mind? Uh, I don't know if you looked into the, the lightning issue, the uh, flood and loot thing, but can can anybody here or has anybody here looked into it that could explain it? Yeah, I looked into it briefly. Whether I can explain it or not is is a different story. Um, you know, at, at face value, I kind of took JC's response and and then you know decided, well, hang on, let me put this low down on the priority list. If JC's not freaking out about it, <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I mean, JC. not that I not that I don't trust JC. Not that that JC's not reliable. But if if JC was going to exploit something. If, if there was something to exploit, JC would know about it and would be telling you that people would be doing it or are doing it. That's and uh, I just moved it lower down on my priority list and kind of just left it at that, if I'm honest with you, which I'm a little ashamed to admit. Didn't it actually require, we're talking about the Lightning Network thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah flood and loot. Didn't that one actually require cooperation with a miner? No. Or am I thinking of a different one? Uh, something else. Okay, no, something I, I else. Let, let, let me, um, Jared, did you want to take a shot? I think I'd take a no, shot. No, man, go, go right ahead, please. All right, so the basic idea is that mm -hmm. you try to force a ton of people to close their lightning channels at the same time. Okay. So it's complicated, the mecha mechanism by which that happens. But if you can get 10,000 people, or uh, not 10,000, 
if you can get 500 people to, to force close their lightning channels at the same time, they are going to stack up the mempool. And the mempool, and just because of the block limit, all of those people are not going to be able to close their channels in time. Okay. So it's like um, this guy, he set up a, or the attacker can set up a sending lightning node and a receiving lightning node, and he can send hundreds and hundreds of payments through hundreds and hundreds of channels. Try to get as many people involved in these payments as possible. And so the sender and the receiver both know this like shared private key, but all of the people that are involved in the routing of these payments, they're just left in limbo and you leave them in limbo for as long as time possible. And for so long that they eventually need to close their channels. They all try to close their channels at the same time, but they can't close them at the same time because that requires, a, requires an on-chain transaction. Mm -hmm. and you just end up with way too many on-chain transactions trying to close in the same window and they can't all close so right. how do they how do they get people to force close the channels do they do they somehow get them to lock up an htlc that never goes through or something yes exactly how do they do that what's do you know do you know what mechanism they're doing that with Daniel, can you? Can I you think like... it's by opening their own channels with those individuals. Okay, so yeah. it's somebody who has built a big yeah. position in Lightning Network, gotten yes. a crap ton of channels. Yeah. And then, yeah. Okay, so they are actually a a part of each of these channels, and then that's right. They're well, they're not everybody a part of to each. close. Yeah, they're not a part of each of the channels, but they're the beginning and end of the payment. Oh. So, you know, okay, normally so in lightning, right, either circular or, you know, or you just have two separate nodes, <laughs> um, you know, and instead of correctly revealing the, um, the pre-image and letting it, you know, flow back through the hops, the attacker already knows the pre-image. So they, you know, they pull without actually revealing it or something. And it causes like a cascade effect through all the people that they've routed through. Okay. Interesting. And again, I haven't, seem, I, haven't, I haven't really looked at it though. That seems pretty difficult to, that, that seems a little unlikely, but I don't know. I, 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 want, I want to dig into exactly like what they can pull off because if they're if they're doing like old transaction states in those channels some of them are going to go through and unless they are literally holding uh, none of the none of the legitimate balance in any of the channels which naturally if it's a circular payment one channel they're going to have a balance in one channel they're not well then or well one channel the payment's going to be coming from one two they're absolutely going to have balance in some of these channels, which means they're also for anything that does go through risking their full balance. in a lot of these channels in the effort to hopefully win out the, the battle in a bunch of these other channels. Um, and they also have to they also have a shit ton of channels. So I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'd be, I'd be really curious to dig into the specifics of like, how they could minimize their costs and risk going into it um, to actually shut down all these force close all of these channels 
uh, and make sure they come out ahead. So besides um, closing channels in the way that we've described, doesn't don't, or don't you also have to kind of saturate the mempool in, for this to work? Well, that's what does saturate the mempool is the force closing. Yeah, yeah. So poorly worded sentence. The mempool has to be yeah. saturated for this to work. Right, but yeah, he, he's yeah. talking about getting, you know, hundreds of people to. Yes, but but I think that this attack has already been explored by by our own um, mempool saturator. Um, who's, who's, yeah, I mean, this is an attack that you've already explored, if I'm not mistaken. I would love for this attack to happen. I mean, if this attack <laughs> happened, it would be so good for Bitcoin. I mean, it would just yeah. be, it'd be great. <laughs> but but, but right. this is what we discussed would happen naturally to Lightning if Bitcoin transactions just saturated the mempool. Right, yeah. and this is also, if I, if I'm not mistaken, this is also a, this is, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that this is something that is almost exactly the same, but just on a magnified scale of something called the wormhole attack, which is, you know, you're routing from Alice to Bob to Carol to Dave, and there's two malicious nodes in the network, and they just kind of hop over this, the, like Carol in the, the example. They just kind of hop over Carol um, and share the secret with, the ends, you know, around her, like yeah. through a wormhole, mm -hmm. and then they can still hurt individual funds. But this can be solved, and I think if it, I guess it's not already solved, but it could be solved with using a different secret across all the hops. Whereas currently the HTLCs use the same pre-image from the beginning of the path all the way to the end, which allows the person at the beginning and the end to know what the pre-image will be. But this is like, there's, there's already been a ton of work done on this to where each hop will like, they'll use, you know, part of the same pre-image and they'll just like adjust it with some salt or some, you know, new randomness to where you're not actually using the same pre-image on each part of the hop. So I think this is, this is one that's, it, do, it doesn't bother me at all. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't bother me long-term at all. Like I'm, I don't think it's, well, I mean, but Partly that's because like, I don't think people should, I mean, I'm, this might be debatable in this group, but I, I just don't think people should view lightning as anything more than a hot wallet. Um, but. Well, I think it's naturally going to be like, we're already looking at the um, uh, node reputations at the protocol level. Um, I think it makes very, I think it makes very good sense that you're going to have kind of an independent reputation system and like I see it as trusted already um, in the sense that I'm not going to open a channel with some random person. Right. I open yeah. a channel with the business I trust, the, uh, you know, the other guys in the crypto economy crew or Bitcoin Audible crew, whatever. Um, and uh, with BitRefill and Fold, like services that I use and Breeze because I got my own Breeze wallet and then my own mobile wallet. You know, like that, that's who I open channels with because you know because like it's it's a semi-trusted relationship right in the end my payments aren't trusted but you know who i have a connection with i they need to be online you know like i can't i can't if i've not got a reliable connection into the network i'm putting myself at risk i'm putting my funds at risk it's a hot wallet like it, it is the new hot wallet in my opinion yeah i think this is an important thing to realize with a voluntary system is you actually have to make 
smart decisions. Kind of the involuntary system means that you should be able to just con you know connect to anybody randomly. Everybody's equal, but when you're actually taking responsibility and have to do this next step, that's part of why it's actually smart behavior to not just have this this fantasy that you should just be able to connect to any Lightning Network node and it should just work. Like that's um, a utopia that's just silly. Yeah, I think there are going to be like semi-trusted relationships. I love that. Um, like kind of the beauty of it is that you have that privacy. So you have a degree of obfuscation and a degree of like the contract is written in such a way that there is unbelievably minimal trust. Um, like there is, you've mitigated trust in 99% of, you know, the hundred ways that like something could go wrong, but you're changing that you're, you're, uh, you're trading those trust minimizations with time with uh, knowing that that node is going to be there that it's a reliable node that is present in the payment system of lightning um, and is going to continue to operate when you need it to operate um, so it's just fascinating that we can create these relationships where there is some sort of an out but again like like i've said in a couple of different ways the whole point of trustless money is so that you can build reliable trusted relationships in the economy on top of it like business relationships trade like in the, at the end of the day we need to figure out how to bring trust back <laughs> because we've lost it in the corruption of our money um and we need sound money to kind of rebuild these things but Again, it's 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 a beautiful thing that all the developers are constant. They're trying. They're the ones working harder than anybody else to break all of these things, uh, so that we can mitigate it in every potential way. Um, so yeah. they're not a solution to that. That's pretty freaking great. At some point in the future, and I, and I think it will. And, improvements. Yeah, this one in particular, I'm almost positive that this has been completely resolved by the wormhole attack stuff, which is, you know, the guys who came up with. Um, some of the two-party ECDSA stuff have done a bunch of research on. God, like that two-party ECDSA no is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. That's the coolest thing ever to basically, like they've essentially instituted a, uh, a uh, almost a no change to the protocol schnorr. <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. they've taken what we already have and yeah. implemented signature aggregation and multi-sig that is hidden and has all the benefits that Schnorr does. Like right. that's and beautiful. That, <laughs> that is even possible. Even more than that, there've been like at least three that I know of three iterations of that concept that have progressively gotten way better. You know, <laughs> really. it would be a really interesting twist if Schnorr's signatures never happened because two-party ECDSA because they weren't needed just got so good so fast yeah I mean imagine if you could do signature aggregation with ECDSA then literally like the vast majority of the benefits like you could there's a real potential that we could there is there is some clever math there that could make a ECDSA based taproot and ECDSA based cross input aggregation. I mean, not now, but 
you know, I didn't Who think the hell knows, man. Works, you know, like so. Dude, all of those, all those two two party ECDSA things came out in like less like two, than a year time frame. Yeah, you know. And it's just because people like before Bitcoin, like who's got who's got the incentive to work on this stuff? It's like just use Schnorr if you want to roll out some new thing. Like we don't have to improve mm-hmm. ECDSA in this way. Just friggin' use Schnorr. It's already out there. But with Bitcoin, like. It just it changes all the incentives to where these really smart ass people put their minds to these problems. And guess what? Like they're smart ass people, you know, <laughs> like do not bet against them. Yep. It's amazing. It's amazing how the incentive structure works like that. Like yeah. you're right. Like there, there are so many like um, uh, improvements in just basic cryptography, just like absolute basic hardcore computer science cryptography that would not have happened if it wasn't for bitcoin you've got more people looking at it today than you've ever had yeah like the the incentive structure and and that's that's still the one thing that i (laughs) i find the absolute most fascinating thing about all of this is that you've literally created the birth of an entirely new insanely profitable and in high demand industry around cryptographic signatures um and even even if you include shit coins and all of this stuff these are people who are looking for new ways to use these things whether they're on a dumb project or a good project um and that just bitcoin alone is the greatest deployment of public private key cryptography in the history of the world. Like, I mean, nothing even comes close. Well, it's the most valuable. I mean, like all of HTTPS is public private key cryptography, but it's like, anyway, I, sorry, I didn't mean to distract. I just meant that's, that's kind of a bold statement to say Uh, it's the greatest deployment of it because See, there's no room in memes for nuance, man. Sorry, I'm sorry. Just, I'm sorry. Just don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it with facts. <laughs> oh my gosh! Earlier today, I re-listened to uh, Goldstein's like, you know, meme talk back from 2019. Goldstein. What did I say? Goldstein. Oh yeah, Goldstein. Yeah. 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 His real name, not his actual name. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Michael Goldstein. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Goldstein. Yeah. Um, but man, that, that was such a great talk. Dude, I was in the audience at that talk. <laughs> oh, really? Oh my yeah, gosh, that, that was epic. Right there, dude. That's, it's so good. That was so freaking good. I was, I was sitting on the floor in the back of the room talking to Matt O'Dell about schmelting when Bitstein gave what? up. What? Yeah. Oh, man. Bookmark that. That's great. Yeah, dude. Oh, that's right. We were sitting in the back of that room because I went over and found you. <laughs> right. and I was like, what the fuck are y'all doing? <laughs> yeah. Talking about smelting. Well, I was, I was mad that uh, Matt O'Dell s- wasn't really on board with smelting, but he's just a very careful guy, I think. Do you think there are any um, cryptography experts that are kind of could be objective about Bitcoin? Because I'm curious from a market perspective, if the acceleration we've seen is that cryptography stopped being a state-sponsored project and became a free market project, and just generations happened in years when that happened. Isn't that what's happening now? Isn't cryptography becoming a 
a free market project. Yeah, that's why I'm saying what's happening, but we yeah. need to find someone who could reliably answer, like how fast was the progress of cryptography or Fire, like, you know, this doesn't post. look like a fast breakthrough, but really the pace has been the same, you, you know. I, I would just be very interested in hearing that. But yeah, the question is, cool. could anyone objectively give that answer? I mean, Bitcoin, everyone has to have some opinion if you're in cryptography about Bitcoin. You have to be crazy for it or just, I would think, or... Yeah, I, th I think you'd have to ask the academics that were in cryptography before it was cool, like Adam Back and uh, these kind of guys that were, um, they were into it before Bitcoin. Uh, you'd probably have to ask those guys, I think. But then Adam Back is like going to say, uh, you know, because he's part of Bitcoin, you need someone who yeah. is just going to give you a straight answer who has no incentive. Yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe Matthew Green. Well, he's got some incentive too. Well, I mean, that's the hard thing is like, if, okay, if you're an academic who got into Bitcoin, then you're biased. But if you're an academic who loved cryptography, but didn't like Bitcoin, then you're kind of biased in the other way. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a tough question. Yeah. It's, I mean, if you don't like Bitcoin, you don't like, um, What's the word? It's when you actually do the thing. <laughs> um, you don't, if you don't like Bitcoin, you don't like applied cryptography. You don't like seeing people use cryptography in new ways. You just want to talk about concepts. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. I feel, I feel like I derailed us with the uh, HTTPS deployment. All right. Public you did. You public ruined it, man. Sorry. Yeah. I, I gotta. I, I gotta make so one good. statement here. <laughs> you, you guys remember? I'll say most valuable back, next time. <laughs> yeah. You guys remember back like uh, I don't know, it was a while ago, but I was doing some research and I found this guy who was a uh, who was an anthropologist expert on the island of Yap and the Rye Stones, and he was a professor at NC State. Oh yeah. Oh, sweet. No kidding. Um, but he was, an N he was at NC State back in 2011. Right. He left. He but went to like Nebraska. We do this at Oregon. Oh, that's what it was. But we do all this stuff over Zoom now. So we should totally invite him on the pod. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. What's his name again? Uh, hold on. It's uh, Scott Fitzpatrick. Dude, that would be a great idea. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email him. Yeah, email him. We should, we should get into a habit of just having random guests on to join us in our drinking and shooting the shit. Do we have to wear suits when Mr. Fitzpatrick's on? <laughs> yeah. That's Dude, what is, this is, I'm looking at his, his profile on Oregon or university of Oregon. Now it's such a subtle flex. He's got his, you know, email and phone and office number and stuff. And then he's got his, his coastal lab phone. He's like, Oh man, this guy's got a coastal lab over on the Island of Yap pretty badass that's amazing yeah. yeah all right more to come next week right. <laughs> now that'd be great i'd love to pick that guy's brain that that is like one of my that is one of the most fascinating things to me um and i've always thought yap is the uh rye stones or whatever um is by far the best allegory to how bitcoin 
works um, as anything. Uh, and oh my God. I could just, like it even, like they update the ownership the same way. You just broadcast it out to everybody. You just yell, you know, this, like you let everybody in the town know that I used to own, you know, these two big stones, but uh, Bob gave me uh, 40 cattle and now he owns both of these stones and it's enforced by the community check or whatever, which is how the global ledger like works on Bitcoin. I, I just always thought that was the most fascinating thing ever. Yeah, but I mean, what if you got sick and you didn't make it to that like broadcast event? Like if your node was offline, do you, do you have to like go around and have much value and you have to trust your peers? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's freaking crazy to how analogous this is. We, yeah, we, we talked about this a uh, while back. I, I'm with you guy. Uh, I, I, I love this analogy in the proof of work concept fits well too. Yep. Because the guy that, that brought the new yap stone uh, through a different method than the way they used to do it, it wasn't recognized. Yep. Which is like so strange. <laughs> Well, so that that would be analogous to like if someone brought a proof of work through. Actually, well, I mean, we're to the point where however you bring it, it's fine. Yeah, that's where I have issues with this is that if someone developed an ASIC that was so incredibly powerful that for those two weeks before the difficulty adjustment could take place, they were just producing blocks like bandits. Well, well, you see, the thing is, though, is that the proof of work in, in our system, the way in Bitcoin, the way it's created is kind of irrelevant because the demand for how much you have to have increases with, so there's no, there's no loss in the hardness of the money. Um, right. so difficulty adjustment is the one that makes that not matter. Um, whereas but Jared got like a mass manufacturing of rye stones well, then you're, you're inflating rye stones at a ridiculous rate. But if you've got a way, you've got a godlike uh, ASIC chip um, for a little while, all you do is make Bitcoins harder to make. Um, and then eventually the, you know, the technology gets distributed and everybody's playing just on a new uh, higher uh, playing field. And Bitcoin is just that much more secure uh, rather than less. So it's like, great, do it. Yeah. But it, it's that... It's that part that the technology gets distributed that's not so clear. Yeah, but I think Daniel's point is is pretty is pretty spot on. It's not a two week window; it's two weeks worth of blocks on an average of right. ten minutes per block. And that's something I hadn't thought of before I before I yeah. mentioned that. But yeah, I think. Um, and that's a huge nuance. Yeah. For yeah, that situation. And that's pretty freaking spot by uh, Satoshi as well. I mean, if he had just tried to make it a two week window, he really could have screwed the pooch on that. Well, yep. I mean, okay, if I had a quantum computer that oh, was, was faster um, or any kind of computer that was faster, I wouldn't, you know, get them in a second. I would get them in nine minutes, you know, and I would get 51% of the blocks for until... You mean if you were smart? Yeah, well, I mean, anybody who can make this quantum computer is going to be smart, I think. <laughs> yeah, but you, you could be smart, but not have a good strategy. 
the, the good, the better strategy would be, you know, win, but don't make it obvious, but make it really easy to win. Oh, definitely. I definitely think if this attack happened, the person would be doing this. Well, see, the thing is, is this, the smart strategy, the smartest strategy and strategy that we've seen in the past isn't even, and it doesn't even have anything to do with mining Bitcoin. It's to do with selling the smart the strategy wouldn't be to attack Bitcoin either. The smart and most profitable strategy is to sell it. Exactly. Because um, you, sell but you can't it. sell it because then people freak out and change the algorithm. No, they won't. I mean, dude, that's the, Bitcoin isn't going to do that. Well, I mean, if you're talking about like quantum and like the hash is broken, well, that's a whole different yeah. story. That, okay, if we're talking about well, that's that. What, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm thinking about just if we just got suddenly out of nowhere a 100x improvement on the efficiency of hashing because of some, you know, computer breakthrough. But yeah, like if we quantum computered and just broke the hash function, yeah, everything, everything's screwed. <laughs> you know, what happened on the island of Yap is not quantum computing. It's more akin to a really kick-ass ASIC in the form of an Englishman and a ship. And die. without a difficulty adjustment. <laughs> yeah. I kind of no, look at it as they, you know, we talked about making a trustless um, blockchain. And I think the technology that was introduced to Yab was the technology of distrust. That if someone is untrustworthy, they can just come in and rob you. Yeah. And that's really what happened. If they had not experienced that before, they kind of had a strategy for it and they couldn't beat it. How is he untrustworthy, though? He was just trying to produce new yap stones. He's just being a nice, nice neighbor. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if anybody ever asked him how he made him, and he told him, like, if he lied about it. I actually heard that there was a split. There was a fork. Um, they rejected it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's part of the community was like, no, this is, this is one of the stones. It's done, it's done right. And then part of the community was just like, he's an outsider. It doesn't count. Yeah. Um, that, that was just kind of like consensus didn't work out that everybody had that there were two separate consensus rules um, and one of them was didn't like foreigners <laughs> so if if the yapstone community had a difficulty adjustment then they would have just adjusted to this new technology of uh, producing the yapstones they should have just made smaller blocks or larger blocks. I mean, I think the difficulty if so large that the ship though. couldn't handle it, they would have just solved the entirety of their problem. <laughs> oh man! No, I think the the difficulty adjustment obsoletes that problem. I think there is some truth to what Papa Frito was saying, though. It was, if it had been someone from the island that had come with dynamites in a ship, it would have probably been looked at differently from a sociological perspective. But an outsider coming in and undermining the their cultural and the, the culture and the integrity of their money uh, was perceived as a maybe what Daniel has previously called as a speculative attack on their currency. Yeah. Well, I mean, their civilization uh, believed that there was a certain amount of work, like a human effort that went into producing that money. And that's what was valuable. You know, it's like trying to make that effort uh, go into the money. And it's like, if that money arrives without that effort going into it, then it's just not valuable. 
because it's not the token itself it's it's the effort that went into producing the token and if all of a sudden this token can be produced by a smaller amount of effort then the difficulty adjustment should kick in you know it's yeah we really need to get this guy on the show because I think we can do a big service for the community to actually get the yeah. real story of the yab. Because the real any story you've heard, the fact that it was transmittable mean it means it got messed up somewhere along the way. So we yeah. can ask the actual expert the real questions, and then we can like solve this the same way that two you know the tulip mania used to plague us, and we have now officially defeated that myth. And now we can like really understand what happened here, and then no one will be able to play. Uh, play with us in the future. Well, I'm typing him out an email right now, so uh, let's see what he's got to say. Nice. Oh yeah. Hey, I've got I've got like a final kind of throwback to minimum wage. I know we kind of transitioned away from that, but my thoughts on minimum wage has changed a little bit because I really suck at making coffee. <laughs> I. Somebody, I think it was Thomas Sowell or however you pronounce his name. He was talking about how minimum, if you don't have minimum wage and people can pay someone a dollar an hour, it gives that person like uh, something to do. Like there's, there's so many things that I suck at. You know, I don't know how to make coffee. I don't know how to like um, build things. If someone would pay me a dollar an hour, to learn how to do this shit and their business got a little bit of value of it. I would totally rather do that than like playing a video game or like doing some other leisure activity. Like my, my ideal leisure activity would be earning a dollar an hour, learning how to do something that I didn't know how to do that would give a little bit of value to some business that wanted it. So I and think the extrapolation of that idea, Steve, is when I'm at the office and I need to give someone something to give a task to someone to do and people are, you know, maybe don't have a lot to do. I will give the task to the highest paid person, knowing that I feel more comfortable having the lowest paid person do less. Having the lowest paid person do what? Do less work. That's, that's exactly what you're describing. Is, is that when I have two employees, one's paid $20 an hour and one's paying te- paid $10 an hour, and I have a task, I will always give it to the $20 an hour employee so that the person who sit around doing nothing is the person who's getting paid less. Oh, okay. And that's what you're describing, right? Got you. Well, I was just describing it from my point of view. Like, if I don't have shit to do, I, I want to learn how to do a new task. You know, I want to learn a new valuable skill and I don't care if I'm paid for it or not. I just want to learn something. Yeah, it's uh, Thomas Sal has a great, like he has so many great kind of perspectives and stuff on this. But like really at the end of the day, like it's just like the most ignorant person, the, the person who can produce the least amount of value, who more than anyone else desperately needs be in a position where they can learn something where potentially they couldn't get a school or their school was just utter garbage because they were in the lowest 
you know, like, like in the worst community out there and their parents didn't teach them anything or whatever it is, for whatever reason, the person who is most vulnerable and least skilled can never get a job. They, they, they have, they have no way to actually get, you know, it's like taking the first four rungs off the ladder. Like nobody gets paid minimum wage for their entire life unless they literally don't learn anything ever. You get paid, you get paid a dollar an hour to, you know, do those jobs that are insanely low skill for those people who specifically have incredibly low skill, like removing that barrier to actually getting in the job market and proving your worth and learning something is how you get rid of poverty is how you allow people to grow. It's, it's, it's to, it's to reject the idea that people need to grow at all is that everybody should just be paid and we should all pretend as if there is no maturation process. There is no learning process. Everyone is equal and should be paid according to that as if as if production is completely irrelevant to economic activity. Um, and I don't know, like, yeah. So like, like I hear all these people talking about like, Oh, I want to learn how to code. Like, Oh, I'm going to teach myself Python. And so like, some of them do that, right? Like, like some of them are like, oh, you know, this weekend I'm going to teach myself Python. Well, like what if there was like a job that paid 50 cents an hour for you to learn to code Python? You know, like it, it's like, what, what if there was like. What if it just taught you 50 cents an hour just to clean up syntax? You just, you just look at a set of rules. You don't even have to know how it works. You just, you're, just, you're just looking at, you just have the basic set of rules to clean up syntax. And so that somebody who's really, really good at code um, and you can actually have like an intro of like, you know, just knowing a couple of important things or a programming. Maybe there's a machine somewhere that just needs to be programmed left, right, up, down directions. And you don't want to hire a hundred thousand dollar an hour programmer for that, but somebody who's just out of the gate learning Python, if you can pay them less, that's key opportunity to get good at it, to internalize it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like wh why do people like read self-help books for free? I mean, if, if no one's paying you money to read self-help books, why do you read a self-help book? Because you yeah. want to get better at something. So like, I mean, p people will actually pay to practice at something or get better at something. You know, w what if uh, an employer was willing to pay somebody a dollar an hour to get better at something? You know, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's just like this enormous, um, oh, here I'm a slave and here I'm bettering myself and there's absolutely nothing in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. mentality that just that that just doesn't make sense to me and it encourages really, employers to actually invest in their employees yeah that's exactly to, what i was going to say that's a great to point treat a treat it as a long-term relationship and to uh, teach them how to do exactly the like if they turn out to be a really really great at learning how to do coffee and you know learning <laughs> how to code up down left right directions you know whatever whatever incredibly small menial job that they intro like are learning and they're really fast learners and they're really eager and they are committed holy shit teach them to teach them the hundred and fifty thousand dollar job you know like like take the time and invest in that person 
the the one thing that I feel like employers are desperate for is somebody who's cares, you know, yeah. like somebody who's actually involved and sees it as productive rather than seeing their employer as an enemy. Um, and like, I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, and it, it just, it aligns incentives properly to create a long-term relationship and to, you know, have the employer care about the, their employee. But, but I don't think the minimum wage is, you're trying to chase 1% of the economy and make that 1% of the economy perfect. When the reality is our economy is, the problem with it is our capital is being allocated to the wrong places. The sure. place we're putting our excess capital is wrong. The exact opposite end of the minimum wage worker has caused the economy to stall out and shrink. And yeah, I have to here's something I wanted that occurred to me, which is truly tragic. The, the most tragic thing that's happening right now is they're trying to ban TikTok. Because one of the <laughs> lies we used to say about ourselves is, you know what? China can have the hardware. We'll design the software. And guess what? China builds better software than us now. Because <laughs> the managers that were idiots that said it was okay to move manufacturing overseas are still managers. They're still idiots, and now their employees are making worse software than communist dictatorships. Our, lead, our, our leadership class is truly incompetent. Like, I think that's hilarious. Yahweh makes there, better actually. hardware. TikTok makes better software. We, uh, we are the USSR now. There was, was that a just point a Trump tweet US or something? <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sorry for interrupting. I think it was Mike Pompeo that goes after them hard. But the reality is the yeah. USSR got angry that the U.S. was building better technology and doing better in the free market than they were, and we just laughed at them. And there is a real possibility that China is going to be living in the future in 50 years, and we're going to look like the Soviet Union holding on to our crappy technology because we're not allowed to import their technology. <laughs> like, they've actually passed us. It's tragic. Who's trying to ban TikTok? Uh, Pompeo. I mean, the reasons are... India those, did. They always have good reasons. The reasons is, a, is in response to Hong Kong, but this has nothing to do with Hong Kong. The reality is that they're angry that they're actually using Chinese software. They don't want that free market choice for the American consumer. Yeah, they're trying to ban it based on the, the fact that it's created by a Chinese company that may be backed by the Chinese military and their data harvesting in a major way. I can't help but... Uh think well i mean i guess it, it's same either way whether it's true or not um but now i can't help but wonder if like all the posts that i ran into that were explaining it was just propaganda yeah. or if this is a reaction to those posts you know um but uh it's, it's ridiculous either way it's stupid so what the ussr would have said back in the day is no, you can't have Apple computers. Look what the U.S. is doing to Iran right now. <laughs> they're, they're supporting a coup in Iran. You can't have your Apple II here in the Soviet Union. We have to stand up for morals. And we're doing the same thing. We have to, we're pretending like we're standing up for morals to prevent Yahweh from sending their stuff here, prevent people from using TikTok that want to use TikTok. And it's crazy. Yeah. Um. I was going to try to get back to the uh, minimum wage stuff. Um, the, the problem I think with 
the, and this gets to like division of labor is that like once somebody gets good at something, it is so hard to keep doing it. Like I've gotten good at a lot of things in my life and I probably could have like been paid some money for like keeping doing the same boring shit that I'm just better at than everybody else. But like, I can't make myself do that. Like, I don't know if that's just me or if that's like a common thing, but like, I don't know. I have same thing. Like, it doesn't matter if I am the best person in the world at, at doing this thing. I can't make myself keep doing the same thing. Like, because it's just so fucking boring. As soon as you, it's, it's like the, the process of learning and the journey of getting good at it is what makes it engaging. Right, exactly. Like that's so what like, makes it fun. As soon as you've kind of internalized it and you become a robot, it's like, ugh, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, so like, does division of labor only work until someone gets sick of it? Like, uh, um, yeah. No, like, because I just think it leads to higher value specialization. Like, and that's just the process of, uh, oh, Dan, Dan dropped out. I didn't even see. Um, I think that's just, uh, that's the process of finding the higher value case of, of maturing. And, and then like that specialization, that previous specialization, um, actually makes them, gives them a unique perspective on the next thing that they go do because there is, uh, like specialization specialization only goes so far you also need you know there's that principle that to know a little bit about a lot is actually incredibly helpful because you can take principles and patterns and things that you've learned perspectives from these other industries and you know how one specialization might interact with 20 different things that you wouldn't know about otherwise yeah. um and it makes you far more efficient. It makes you more creative in the space. Um, and it makes you know what the second and third uh, layer effects of something are likely to be. It, like learning more things makes you better at the specialization of the, the thing that you're good at. Um, so I don't know. I think that's a, I, I think that's kind of natural. And the, the, the more you learn, the more value you can produce in the end, you know? The, the Python example I thought was really was interesting because when I hear about someone who's learning uh, Python in their free time, I know they're not going to learn Python. I know they're going to put it on their resume and never use it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that might, that might that's probably the way to make their wages go up. And it's a messed up economy that that's how it is. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, we had uh, real literacy problems. And the, the reality is that if you just cornered the American public that pretends like they can program and make them like write one program and everything on their resume, we're all faking literacy. Like we have, we have real systematic problems going on right now. And it's, it's kind of hard but to wrap our head around it, what to do next. Is the reason that they're never actually going to learn Python because like, they can't get a job that pays them 50 cents an hour to learn Python. Like if there was a job that paid them that, don't you think more people would actually learn? I think the jobs that need people who know how to code Python well are getting those people, 
you know, they're just, I, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's credentialism. You're just adding this fake thing on your resume that makes you a better, it makes the, per, it makes the HR person look like they're doing their job well. Yeah. It's, it's reverse incentives. But like, I, I bet there's a lot of Python jobs out there that need to be done that I could actually do even though I'm not like a professional or anything. I, th I think yeah, I would bet the same simple shit that it would be nice to have somebody for, but they just get other people. They get higher people that they have to pay a whole lot more for in order to do it just because they can't afford to hire a whole nother person. Yeah. I guess maybe the hard part is knowing that it's yeah. like knowing whether the job you need done can be done by a novice or a professional like that. That's the hard part. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the gig economy, they're, they're still working out the kinks of it. It eventually could get there. But right now it's, you know, still a work in progress. You can't yeah. just go someplace and just get all the work you, you know, here's the pile of work, do as much as you can and we'll pay you for as much as you do. It's not, you know, it's not quite there yet. Yeah. Dude, this gig, gig economy is, I don't know. I feel like it's going to change with this corona stuff. Half of the unemployment figures are gig, gig economy workers. Yeah. That's interesting. Which means that the unemployment numbers are actually probably double what they should be. <laughs> That's an interesting why, why are you counting them? Yeah. These new people to the, to the roles. What's, what's the point? There's a... Uh... I've been listening to uh, Toffler's, was it Adam, Adam Toffler, The Third Wave. Have you ever heard that or read that book? What is, what is that exactly, The Third Wave? Okay, so it's written in 1981. Okay. It's talking, talking about the information revolution. All right. Which I love when I can find something prior to the information revolution talking about the information revolution. Yeah. Um, just because you see how uh, prescient that like their their predictions are you know yeah like sovereign individual yeah um uh, just like the sovereign individual and to see it like from that per like perspective and he goes through like the first and second wave and really details out like the last three or four hundred years in kind of the major trends i thought that was actually so far has been one of the most interesting parts of the book because he talks about he talks about the nation state and the centralization of uh, societies into these highly production centric uh, cultures and ideologies that like we are like like literally the country is treated like a manufacturing plant that we need to hit these numbers and and they talk about even like the granular the the granularity of time like increasing we actually developed our standard for seconds and minutes and like truly adopted them because we had workers that had to show up at time at a specific time to produce a specific thing and we had to be able to measure our productivity according to how much how much it took to actually get it done, how long it took. Um, a lot of interesting uh, perspectives. And then talking about, uh, it's funny, he talks about computers and like the internet obviously is not really a part of it. 
at all. But he talks about all of these two-way communication systems. He talks about being able to order stuff through your TV, um, about uh, things being made to fit you specifically or like custom things and talks about like the trends in manufacturing to much smaller custom run goods where manufacturing process rather than being to pump out 200,000 of a single cookie cutter product is maybe a hundred of these just one-time products and then modifying to produce a different thing and that the the information technology is getting so efficient that we can actually do this and if you take that trend forward you get and he basically describes additive manufacturing wow. before really additive manufacturing like he just he just kind of you know projects the trends forward and it's so funny to hear him talk about a system that could be in cable tv that is absolutely what we're doing right now but it's got nothing to do with cable TV. It's on the internet, you know, but it's just, it's just really fascinating. Um, I've been super enjoying it. It's like freaking 18 or 19 hours long. It's a big book. What's additive technology? Additive manufacturing is 3d printing. Okay. Yeah. Nice. These guys with these visions, it's, it's great. I love it. It's, love oh, it. it's so great. It's amazing. It's just like, wow, this guy's just, he was like, okay, nobody's gonna listen to me he's like I was, <laughs> it was like i was born in the wrong century i'm born at the wrong time but i'm compelled and like i have this calling and so i just have to write out all of these thoughts in my head yeah yeah it's do like you know, it's amazing do you know that george orwell fought in the uh spanish civil war like he I did i read that was that you that posted that Maybe, yeah. So he fought on the side I saw of the that somewhere very kids. recently. First, the fascists. They proceed to lose, and then he just writes all these amazing new novels about exactly what the future is going to be because he saw these people and shot at them. He knew what they were going to do because he actually like risked his life to fight them, and wow. then documented about exactly what was going to happen. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot, man. To to really realize that he knew he had lost. Wait, like George? he actually took up arms and lost, and then like that's why him. in the book I guess the the main character loses, you know. <laughs> hmm. Well, George Orwell, I thought he was British. And, well, that was a so that was a real anarchist struggle. Like uh, uh, Hemingway, I think, was fighting there. Um, they, in Casablanca, the main character in that. Uh, had been a fighter and that it's just all people from all over the world just showed up in Spain to defeat the fascists there that were trying to take over. That's and crazy. briefly you had, this was the closest we ever had to anarchy probably in, in modern times was that briefly they did have kind of some, an actual anarchist government. Wait, I thought you were talking about the Spanish American war. No, this is a Spanish civil war. Oh, the Spanish civil war. This was the war in the thirties, right before world war two. Oh, and this was who? Who was fighting who in this war? Sorry, I don't know much about this war. Um, so it, it's basically anarchists versus fascists. You know, people that they they had gotten rid of the uh, royalty in Spain, and they were trying to like actually have no ruler. You know, anarchy doesn't mean no rules; it means no ruler. So they were actually trying to do that. And then they installed this fascist instead, who does win, uh, Franco. 
And then Franco is the dictator of Spain until the 70s. That they, you know, this big country in Europe and Portugal are run by are run by dictators until the 70s because of this conflict goes the wrong way uh, versus history. You know. Wow. And George Orwell and Hemingway were fighting in Spain. Yeah. They understood how the whole world understood how important this conflict was, and it went the wrong way. You know. Wow. Okay. Damn. Because you know you had, the, you had the twenties when everyone is kind of in exile, and the Roaring Twenties were happening, and you know there is a whole intellectual revolution, and then they delivered. They actually tried to fight a war, but they didn't win. And then that kind of brings noir is kind of a response to to the failure of the Spanish Civil War and uh, the reality of World War Two as well. Dude, it's, it's isn't it so surreal knowing that Bitcoin is one of these things? It is. Like we talk about like history and like these huge moments in history, isn't it kind of like almost more than um, it's just it's too much to handle to realize how important bitcoin is in history i mean the good thing is i don't think people it, it's big but it's also small like me if you had been at the homebrew computer club in the 70s when every future ceo was just like bringing in their <laughs> building a computer together like that's the period we're living in and it's amazing if you care but if you don't care it's you know we're not going to be a burden on you. you don't really have to learn this history but if you are passionate about it you know it's, it's the place to be but I mean, uh, I think most of us believe that Bitcoin is going to be the, the you know, world default financial system. It's going to be the global money. And it's like, this is the period in which it fights for it. You know, it's like, I don't know. I, I mean, I see it bigger. I see it as like open source versus closed source. Like, is, is Earth going to, primarily be run by open source money or closed source money i think we've increasingly like that that's that's an interesting way to put it is the difference between open source and closed source money um but i i don't know to some to some degree i i see it as an inevitability because there's there is only like only a trustless money like only a trustless sound money can actually like the the efficiency gain from using it is staggering. Yeah. Like so, if any economy does use it, it will literally it it will grow and produce so much better than its competitor than the external economy. I see it as just kind of a matter of time. Um. I, I genuinely think it's whether or not Bitcoin dies. Like that is the, that is the determining factor is whether or not we have a Bitcoin standard is does I, it survive all of its adversaries? I could see the world getting split into like the cold war, you know, efficient mm -hmm. side and efficient side, but on the inefficient side, they have, you know, all the world's history. They have all the royalty. They have like, you know, all the, all the most prestigious things. And on the other side, you have the actual super efficient economy, but like it's, you actually have two full on cultures inhabiting the earth again, which would really suck. We don't want that scenario to happen almost as much as we don't want the complete loss to happen.
Why is it that the the freedom, the sovereign individual side of things is always this minority that is it's just always in the minority, but it's always kind of the best way. Like what you know the whole concept of America, right? It's like, oh, freedom, and then like all the capable and intelligent people flock to it, and then it flourishes, and then it's awesome, and then it becomes the minority again. And it's corrupted, and, and it's corrupted, degrades, and deteriorates, and it degrades. And yeah, but you, you I, can't ever. Reading, or go ahead. I've been reading that uh, Saul Alinsky book, Rules for Radicals, and his his theory is there you divide people in three camps you have the haves that just want to maintain the status quo and they kind of build rituals around the status quo right. you have the, the have a little want some mores and those are the people that do everything and then you have the have nots that are kind of hopeless just because they have they're in such a state of despair they just have to survive and so the people in the ha have a little want some wars they're not going you know that's where all like the great leaders come out of but they're a minority the rest of that group is a, someone who only plays poker when they have three aces you know <laughs> they're, they're going to keep folding every hand until they get three aces because they have a little and they want some more they're not going to take risks right it's it's this com it's the complacency of that middle the middle class that they're not going to take any risk until they're sure the new the bitcoin's going to win you know, it's a th you know three aces in their hand. That's when they'll they'll get into Bitcoin. That's the FOMO crowd. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think it's a a failure of our organizational systems. Like society is like we don't we don't understand what society and the economy is. Like I think we're totally ignorant of the real forces that dictate how it actually works and none of those forces as we identify them uh, can scale and our attempt to organize it our attempt to control and design it is our own downfall in actually sustaining it and what we are doing is we are iterating on all of these methods of organizing and creating a society that scale just a little bit better or in a slightly different way and can produce this much better efficiency and this this much better coordination and then it starts to grow to a scale where and then it you know reaches that point where it can no longer scale and it inevitably grows outside of that and then comes the deterioration then comes the 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 collapse stage again but the you know that's that's how evolution works right the uh the individual deaths the, the deaths of all the individual units the ability for units to fall away and come back and for systems to collapse and then reform in a different way is how you in how you in the end find a solution this is just or you find the truth and you find something that does scale. And I think we're just transitioning into a global community. We've been in the process of doing this for 50,000 years and uh, we've done it wrong thousands of times, uh, but it's increasingly got better and more connected. And we continue to find these independent protocols that remove the, the conscious design. That's what Hayek said in, um, 
the use of knowledge in society, that the very goal of all of this is to figure out how to align incentives and create emergent organization that is explicitly outside of the realm of what is possible to consciously design because there is no way to do that for society. Like it, it, is, it is that which is explicitly not under the, the, the cognitive ability of a single, of a single mind. Um, we're, we're taking in way too much information. It, like that's the price system. Um, and I think Bitcoin is a ma massive step towards doing that because um, where one of the most powerful corruptions in our inability to scale our previous political system was, is potentially being solved. Um, and, you know, you, we could begin to see one that sustains or collapses in a, in a much, um, to a much thinner degree to like, to like a, like a higher layer ra rather than needing to fall all the way back to layers of one and two, like the, uh, the actual base of society and survival, we could crash it back to layer three, kind of like the lightning network can crash back to Bitcoin. Our political system can crash back to our money and it doesn't destroy all of society. We have a, we have a new base to start from and we can actually scale to a global cooperative economy. Um, and I think that's what our whole process is, is we're figuring out how to scale humanity because we suck at it. And we've done it wrong a whole bunch of times um, because we're all stupid. We're all individuals. We're all idiots. We're all biased as shit. We, we all have our own deeply seated prejudices and reasons for disliking each other. And it's incredibly hard to organize those people, like people. Um, so I don't know. That's why I think Bitcoin is kind of an inevitability because it's that one thing. It's that totem that could actually solve a new part of the base layer and send us a huge leap forward into then solving the higher layers higher problems i guess you could say dude i think you should like pursue that thought that really resonates with me um the hayek thing about seeing the price system as just in a uh, really efficient communication of information when i finally got that that was like a real so revolution yeah it was it was a real it was a real light bulb for me. And to like think of Bitcoin as a revolution on that scale as the price system is, I think, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that's one of the most, that's literally one of the most fascinating, fascinating ideas in economics that I have ever stumbled across. And even revisiting it after years of reading about it, it's still like, because it's naturally something that is impossible to understand, all you can really do is think about the incentives and the underlying pieces of the puzzle that lead to it. And no matter what you do, you end up stepping back and realizing like an emergent price, no matter what we're talking about, is going to account for more accurate information than anything that I have a preference for. It's like the most humbling thing ever to be so like, humbling. I can't do anything about like, no matter how right. strong my bias is, like I, 
order is emergent and that is inherently going to have a staggering amount of information that I just cannot ever know, no matter how long I spend trying. Yeah. I mean, after someone understands this, the idea of a centrally planned economy is just such a joke. <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, why would you limit yourself like that? Like, why would you strap on these limitations? Like, why would, I mean, it's like you had a computer that ran at like two gigahertz and had like 64 gigs of RAM and you just limited it to like, you know, megahertz and like kilobytes of RAM. <laughs> it's like the price system is this, the sharing of information across distances that is just, it's just insanely efficient. Yeah. Like, it, it, yeah, dude, the more I learn about Hayek, the more I just want to know everything that he's got. I mean, <laughs> that was brilliant. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm kind of new to this Austrian economic stuff, but I think I can already tell that I'm in the Hayek camp as opposed to the Mises camp. With the yeah, thing I'm, that, I definitely, if, if we're separating, I don't really separate them. Like I know people get real nitpicky about this shit and I just kind of, I kind of love what they both, both brought to it. And, yeah. and I don't, I don't even specifically define it that like, I feel like so many of the spe specifics are still up in the air um, that I kind of right. like to step one level, like take one or two steps back and yeah. they're explaining the same thing to me. I feel like, yeah. but if we had to get that specific, I totally agree. I'm, I'm Hayekian all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a tendency to like try to split hairs too much. Like <laughs> for the most part, it's they're, they're on the same page. Do you think there's an advantage because to um, Bitcoin knowing there's 21 million total that didn't exist under previous hard money systems because Gold was hard, but we didn't really know there wasn't a city of gold somewhere. Like, do you think that that is going to matter? That um, that even that Bitcoin will be a better communication tool for hard money pricing information. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it makes yeah. sense that it would. I mean, it's like it, with gold. We, we have some reason to believe that it's hard to mine, but we don't know for sure. You know, with Bitcoin, we, like, we know for sure that it's hard to mine. I, I think just the, yeah. the, the sheer nature of the fact that it's a, um, like perfectly scarce, like that in, in, at the end of the day, it's, there's only 21 million. I think that is what makes it the best money uh, th that we could ever have. Um, because it means that its production is um, like even even the new like amount that comes into the economy, it's so unbelievably predictable. Like it's it's one hundred percent perfect, and its value doesn't change it. Like whereas if gold you know went ten x tomorrow, we'd be mining twice as much out of the ground. Um, uh, but but it's it's just not profitable to mine a lot of it right now because of its price. And as the price goes up, it becomes more profitable. In fact, if the price of gold went 100x, we'd be launching shit into space looking for it. 
you know, <laughs> like it would be profitable to do that. Um, but, uh, uh, that I think is, that I think is the absolute, like, holy shit factor to Bitcoin is that it is straight up 21 million perfectly predictable schedule. Um, and in doing so, in relation to it, it will have the most accurate economic pricing possible. It's funny. You know what? You know what's funny is I was just thinking about how um, you can incentivize the new creation. Like you know, you can incentivize more digging for gold and find more gold. We Bitcoin kind of incentivized new developments in cryptography. I feel like that would be the equivalent almost of incentivizing new digging for gold, but it's still not the same because it doesn't increase the supply. It doesn't increase the supply. It finds a new uses for what we have. Yeah. Um, it actually turns around and makes it more valuable. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why I think payments are just kind of a, a matter of time. Like, like no matter what we think about, like the limitations of, uh, you know, lightning or whatever right now. Um, Parker Lewis said it best is like, you know, we figured out how to achieve consensus in a decentralized system. Uh, and we solved an impossible computer science problem with the Byzantine generals problem. And we created the first absolutely scarce digital asset that has ever existed. And, and you think the thing that's going to just stop us in our tracks is payments <laughs> like, like yeah. that's not that is not the that's not even a breakthrough if we solve payments you know it's just i don't know like payments are old like we got 100 payment systems already like we're, we're going to figure that shit out like yeah you solved the revolutionary problem now we have a kind of a headache to deal with <laughs> yeah yeah i mean like it, lightning has a bug okay big deal okay liquid has a bug a oh, big deal it's like they, these aren't lightning wasn't a revolution for humanity you know liquid wasn't a revolution for humanity bitcoin was a revolution for humanity like it n none of those things affect bitcoin yeah 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 it's like and that's kind of the beauty of the second layer yeah and that's that's why, in a sense, I got like kind of annoyed when so much attention was getting paid to Lightning. Like there was a moment where every Bitcoin podcast was talking about Lightning. And I just, I got annoyed with that because Lightning, it's great. It's awesome. It's interesting, but it's not revolutionary. You know, it's, it's, it didn't really solve any great problem of humanity, you know. I don't know. I guess I should walk that back. Like I, I love lightning. It's, it's great. It's awesome. But lightning's just not revolutionary in the same sense that Bitcoin was revolutionary. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. If there's bugs in lightning, it's like, who cares? That doesn't bugs in lightning does not shake my confidence in Bitcoin at all. Yeah. Whereas I feel like that's kind of the beauty of it is that it's a second layer, you know? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like what you're just saying. Like, if it can collapse back onto the first layer, and we can, we can build again from there. Oh my dear God! 
I'm going to have to uh, close off, but uh, let's not, uh, if we can stop recording. Yeah. Uh, if we want to close this. Yeah. Uh, well, 